The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges, so we have the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then we get Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. So Judges chapter 6, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 205, 205. If you're watching on live stream, we're glad you're here. It's good to be together as the people of God. This morning, we're going to be looking at our multiply moment uh, couple of lessons from Judges 6 and 7. So we're taking another week of pause from our series in Philippians in order to reflect upon what's going on in the life of our church. And it's good for us to reflect on that as we anticipate next Sunday as we vote to become three independent churches. So would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, we're longing for you to open our eyes so that we would see wondrous things from your book that you have spoken to us for our encouragement and upbuilding so that we would become more like your son, Jesus. So work that collectively in our hearts this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, Every church, all churches go through key moments in the life of their church. And it's important to reflect upon where we have been and where we are going. And in particular, what I want to do is reflect upon the pathway or the life of Bethlehem over these last 151 years. So just travel with me on June 22nd, 1871. This church, which was called the First Swedish Baptist Church, was planted. In 1945, about 70 plus years ago, the church changed its name to Bethlehem Baptist Church because nine years earlier, the congregation voted to transition all of their services from Swedish into English. And all that was left was one Sunday school class to remain in Swedish. In 1980, Who was here? Anyone here? Yeah, a couple of hands. 1980, Bethlehem hired John Piper, a professor of biblical studies at Bethel College, what what it was known at the time, who had no previous pastoral experience. We did okay with that hire, didn't we? (laughs) On October 13th, 2002, so almost exactly 20 years ago in several days, we met at the University of Northwestern as the North Campus for the very first time. How many, how many of you were there at that inaugural service? Many hands. On April 9th, 2011, not that long ago, Pastor John preached a sermon on Bethlehem's Antioch moment from Acts chapter 13, calling the congregation to pray as he announced his imminent and eventual retirement. And then in 2016, We began our 25 by 25 Fill These Cities campaign to build a South Campus, to strengthen the core, to reach the unreached, and to plant 25 churches. And then on July 26, 2020, 
the church voted to approve the 2020 vision, where we would go from one church with one preacher to one church with three different preachers at each of the campuses, and then to function more like three congregations by holding campus congregational meetings. And then as part of the 2020 vision, we, su- we commissioned a subcommittee to look at the long-term structure of the church. And the results of that subcommittee led to our Multiply initiative, which hopefully you are all familiar with to this point. Hopefully you haven't been living under a rock. And next Sunday, October 16th, is another important moment in the life of our church where we will vote, or you will vote, whether we will become three independent churches. So let me just share a few things before we jump in to looking at Judges. First, this is going to be a topical sermon where we reflect upon Judges and apply that to our current context. So it's not our typical pattern of just working through an entire book in kind of expository manner where we kind of want to lay out the main point of the text. The second thing is I'm preaching this not to put my thumb on the scale. So my hope is not to convince you to vote a particular way next Sunday. I, 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 could, well, I, I was going to say I could care less. I, I do care, but my, my point is not to get you to vote a certain way, but rather to exhort us to collectively trust God more in the midst of this key moment in the life of our church. And the third thing is if you're not a member of Bethlehem this morning, this message is still relevant for you. I hope that this message will articulate the type of people we are and we are becoming and we want to increasingly be as we walk by faith. And our hope is that you would join us in this journey and in this mission to magnify Christ in all things. We'd love to see you at some point stand up front here and become a member of this body. So, Judges chapter 6, let me just set the stage for us, since many of us may not be familiar what's going on in Judges. The book of Judges comes after the death of Joshua, and so now Israel has no leader in the land after Moses and then Joshua, and now there's no very clear leader. And the state of affairs is summed up with this sentence, everyone did what was right in his own The people were going astray. They were rebelling against God. And God would send foreign nations to come and punish the people of Israel. The people of Israel would then cry out to God and say, help. And then God would send deliverers. He would send judges that would deliver them, that would give them peace for a season or so. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So they go through this cycle again and again where the people rebel against God. They forget about God. They do whatever they want. God sends four nations to punish them. They cry out and God delivers them. When we come to Judges chapter 6, look with me at verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. In Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we see a bit of a summary of their dire situation and circumstances. I won't read it all, but essentially the Midianites would come in every year right around harvest, and they would devour the land. They would come in after they've planted and watered their crops and come in and just take all of their oxen, take all of their sheep, eat all of their produce, take all of their harvest, 
and then leave. And they would do this year after year after year so that the Israelites were so afraid of these Midianites, this overwhelming army, that they ended up actually resorting to living in caves around that area. If you look at verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5, it says, For they, the Midianites, would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. There were so many of them. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And so Israel cries out for help to God, and God sends Gideon. And we won't kind of look at sort of the call of Gideon, but we'll at least highlight that God says to Gideon, I want you to deliver my people from the Midianites. And Gideon replies in chapter 6, verse 13, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And then the angel replies, go and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not, do not I send you? And then Gideon replies in verse 15, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And then God speaks an enduring word of hope that we're going to come back to in verse 16. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. We're going to come back to that. But the dire circumstances for Israel in this moment is that they're overwhelmed, they're paralyzed by fear and anxiety, they're desperate, they doubt God's care. And I think as I have prayed and thought about this moment for us as a church, we're not quite in the same place. We're not desperate and uh, maybe overwhelmed with anxiousness, but there is some levels of uncertainty. We've not done this transition before. We've not ever gone from one church to become three separate churches. And even for those who are maybe in favor of this transition, there are big questions of who will we be and what will it look like as we embark upon this proposed transition. And so what I want to do is highlight five observations from Judges 6 and 7 for our moment that I believe are very relevant for our church in this moment. So the first one comes in chapter 6, verse 36. So look with me at chapter 6, verse 36 to 40. And the first observation is that God grants grace for the fearful. God grants grace for the fearful. Verse 36, Judges 6, 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So Gideon is putting God to the test and asking him for a sign. Verse 38. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. This first point that we see is that God grants grace for the fearful and for the doubting. The angel has already said to Gideon, do not fear. But Gideon is so afraid that he's constantly throughout this asking for more and more signs. He actually asked for a sign earlier 
He, he says, give me a sign. And he says, I'm going to go prepare an offering. And he brings a goat back and fire consumes that goat. And now he says, again, he wants another sign, actually two. In verse 36, it says, if you will save. So Gideon is doubting God. And at one level, it's really understandable. Gideon is looking at the innumerable Midianites that have tormented and oppressed their people for seven years. And he's thinking, there's no way this is going to happen unless God comes through. And yet, Gideon is not to be commended or emulated here. His request reveals his unbelief and his lack of faith. Very often this text is used to try to determine God's will. And, you know, some of us might be tempted when we go home, lay out a wool blanket in the backyard, put it in the deck. You know, maybe God will help me figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life or whether I take this job or not. And yet the problem here is that God's will was really clear. The angel told Gideon, you're to go and deliver Israel from the Midianites. He wasn't trying to figure out God's will. And this is actually even more exasperating. If you look at 634, chapter 6, verse 34, what does it say? It says that the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon so that he had courage and boldness to gather all the armies of God at that point. And so the spirit of the Lord was empowering Gideon and yet still he doubts. He's still searching for a way of escape. So Gideon is an example of what not to do. We're not to follow in Gideon's footsteps here. Jesus says in the New Testament, Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Or when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, what did Jesus say? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, quoting from Deuteronomy. And so we don't need signs when we've been given the greatest and ultimate sign in Jesus and his word. So it's even more surprising when we look at chapter 6, verse 36 to 40, that God actually does exactly what Gideon asked for. And I was trying to think through what it would be like if, you know, I was to try to illustrate this. It would be a little bit like if my kids come to me and they say, Dad, can we go get ice cream tonight? And I say, sure, that'd be great. We'll we'll definitely do that. And then, you know, they doubt and they don't think I'm going to be true to my word. And so they say, dad, can we go to your wallet and take the money out of your wallet just to guarantee that we're going to get ice cream tonight? How would I react in that moment? I would say, how dare you? My word is my word. Why would you question me? That would be insulting. That's exactly what Gideon does here. He says, I know that you've told me. I know that you've already given me a sign. You've already brought an angel to tell me. And yet, can I get another sign? It's it's downright insulting to ask that of God. And yet God is so gracious to Gideon. He lavishes his grace upon him. He condescends to give him exactly what he needs. God could have rebuked him and said, I'm picking somebody else. And he doesn't. There's such lavish grace here from God for fearful and doubting people. And likewise, for our church, as we reflect upon not just the last 151 years, but as we reflect on the last 18 months to two years, God has been so gracious to us, has he not? 
to survive all that transpired in the last two years, in the 2020 vision, in the turmoil of 2020 and 2021. And God has lavished his grace upon us. There are other churches where their senior pastor resigned and that church plus all of their campuses imploded and ended. God has been so gracious to us. Be reassured that God gives his people exactly what they need. The second observation is that God works against human boasting. God works against human boasting. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. That word Herod sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for trembling. So it's like they're beside the spring of trembling. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So here we come to a very surprising problem. What we expect to hear when we've been told that the Midianites are like locusts that move into an area and devour everything and they, who cannot be numbered, we expect God to say, the Midianites are too great and, and I can't give them into your hand because there's too many of them. Instead, what he says is that there are too many of you for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Because when I do, you're going to boast in yourself. You're going to be self-confident, self-reliant. In verse 2, he says, you, you will say, my own hand has saved me. God knows the heart of mankind. And so what he does is he intentionally works to keep Israel from committing the sin of prideful self-sufficiency. He intentionally works against any human boasting before they go out to battle with what they had at the time, which was 32,000 soldiers. And just very briefly, as we consider our own situation in these last two years, I believe that God has graciously and providentially worked to keep us from boasting in ourselves. When we look back over the last two years with fractures among the leadership, disagreement among individuals, accusations, negative attention for the church, God has graciously brought us low. We might otherwise be tempted to think we're a pretty big deal. We're pretty special to boast in our church identity. And yet this is God's mercy upon us, I believe, to humble us and to preserve us so that he might use us for his glory and purposes. The third observation God chooses what is weak to reveal his power. God chooses what is weak to reveal his power. Look with me at Judges 7, verse 3, all the way to verse 8. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So if any of the soldiers are afraid, send them home. And then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. I can just imagine Gideon's face just loses all color when two-thirds of his army just starts scattering. Verse 4, And the Lord said to Gideon, 
The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. Verse 8, so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So God whittles down the army from 32,000. You see the 22,000 plus the 10,000 that remained. So 32,000 people all the way to 300. And he uses the most weird way possible. Those who kneel down and put their face to the water, lapping it up like a dog, that's in one category. And then those who use their hands and then lap it up from their hands is in another. And what remains are 300 soldiers. God's ways are counterintuitive, not according to human wisdom. Imagine being Gideon at this point. He just wants to throw up, doesn't he? Like, I I thought I was doing okay with 32,000. The Spirit of the Lord came upon me so I could call all the people to come. And and that was a pretty good call. And and now you're going to have me deliver Israel with 300 men. God uses an intentionally small army to reveal his power to save. In verse 7, he says, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And we see this pattern throughout the Bible, don't we? That God chooses the small and weak things in order to accomplish his purposes. Like when Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 14, he, he says to his armor bearer, let's go up against this Philistine garrison, probably of 20 men. Between the two of us, we have one sword. And what do they say? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Or David, when he faces off against Goliath, he has no sword. What does he say? This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Or when Elijah He goes up against the prophets of Baal. How does he pray? He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So God, again and again, throughout the scriptures, intentionally stacks the deck against himself to make it unmistakable that he alone is God. He alone is in control. There are no coincidences in God's plans. And he wants his people to see again and again and again and again. Don't miss it. God is the one who is in control. I will get glory for myself. I'm going to work in such a way so that there is no human boasting. So that my power will be shown. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose what is foolish 
in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And God does this most amazingly where? In the cross of Christ. Jesus dies so that we might have life. This morning, our hope is in God. Our hope is not in a certain sized budget or attendance numbers or any influence we might have. Uh, Our hope is in God. God chooses what is weak and foolish and despised to reveal his glory. And so this morning, let's not begrudge the fact that we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. We're, we're nobodies when all is said and done. And yet we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God and for the name of Jesus, not for the name of Bethlehem, not for the name of the North Campus or whatever we're going to be called. We exist to boast in Christ. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 9, 23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this. So he's not saying don't boast at all. He says, boast in the right things. What do we boast in? That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so this morning, I'm calling us to be a people who is eager and ready to boast in one thing and one thing alone. And that's the name of Jesus. Observation number four. God gives well-timed encouragement. God gives well-timed encouragement. Look with me at verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. And that same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pira, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pira, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And let me just summarize the rest all the way to 15. Essentially, they go down into the camp and they overhear a man telling his friend that he had a dream. It was this large barley loaf of bread that tumbled in and flattened their entire camp. And he says, that's got to be Gideon. Weird dream. I wouldn't have naturally linked barley loaf with Gideon, but they do because it's of God. And God gives this well-timed encouragement, gives this reassurance once again for Gideon. I know you're fearful. I know you're doubting. And so if you need just another encouragement, here's the fourth one. Here's a dream of the very people. You're going to go in and take over, and they are shaking in their boots right now. And in verse 15, it says, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. So again, what we see here in Gideon is that God condescends to give grace for his fearful and trembling people to take hold of his promises. Gideon said, 
I don't know how I'm going to do this. And God said, I will be with you. Is that not enough? And again and again, he shows him, here's a picture, here's a sign that I'm with you. In this multiply moment, we have also seen God's lavish grace to us. I just want to share two evidences that have really landed on me in the last couple of weeks. I think two main questions that many people have asked is, is downtown ready for this? Because they have, uh, they've had a rough last couple of years. So is downtown ready? And then is the bank going to work with us? Because that could be a showstopper if the bank is unwilling to work with us or if we have to get a really high mortgage rate and we know the interest rates are going up. And so let me share the, answer the first question. Is downtown ready? I have this quote from a longtime downtown member who's been there many decades, and she writes, right now, downtown, there is such a sweet spirit and fresh joy. It reminds me of spring. We have felt like we've been through a really tough winter with brutal winds and sub-below temperatures for weeks on end, but now we've moved into spring. We aren't at the crocus stage of spring, but more like blossoms on trees. It is a beautiful place to be. And for many of us who are praying and we care about our downtown brothers and sisters, let this be an encouragement. I think they're ready. They're eager. The second question is whether the bank would work with us in crafting new mortgages. We had a 3.2% rate, and we know that interest rates are climbing 5 6%, and that could have been a, a significant showstopper. And we asked our bank, and they said they would let us keep our 3.2 interest rate and separate it into three different mortgages. And they would let us do that for four years before it kind of renewed. Yeah. All we did was ask. And they actually came back initially and said, that rate, three years. And we asked again and said, can you do it a little bit better? And they said, okay, four years. So we really do just see that as a miracle. God's kindness, his lavish grace to us again and again. Number five, observation number five and last. God secures a great and counterintuitive victory. God secures a great and counterintuitive victory. I'm not going to read the rest of chapter seven. I encourage you to do so, 16 all the way to 25. But what happens is Gideon divides his men into three different groups of 100 each. And he says, get a trumpet, get a torch, and get a jar. Put your torch in the jar, and we're going to go down and this 100 on this outskirt, this 100 on the other spot, and another 100 in a different spot. And they go down right about midnight. It's the beginning of the second watch of night, which is 12 a.m. all the way to 4 a.m., right at the beginning of that middle watch. And they break their jars revealing their torches, blow their trumpets, and cry out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And there's irony here that you need to see. How many swords do they have? None. They didn't go in with any swords. Just like David went up against Goliath and he says, I'm going to cut off your head and feed it to the birds. And I don't even come with a sword because God's going to give me one when I need it. And same thing here. God supplies them a counterintuitive victory. They go in with trumpets and torches, and God turns the people against themselves. They attack themselves, and then they flee. 
and they get the victory. Verse 22 says, The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So God comes through and delivers Israel, resulting in peace for another 40 years for Israel. I encourage you to read it and and just reflect upon God's kindness in that story. Yet on this side of the cross, God has secured an even greater and even more counterintuitive victory, has he not? Through Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, he obtains life and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation for all those who would believe in him. Jesus, the snake crusher, would take on Satan, not with a man-made sword, but with his very death, he purchased life for all those who would believe in him forever. And so Gideon ultimately points forward to the ultimate deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Gideon just shows us that he's constantly flawed and divided. He's afraid, he's doubting, he requires reassurance again and again. Even when he says, cry out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, he throws his name in there. And I think he shouldn't have. And we actually see later, he calls the people who were sent away to all come and join him in pursuing the Midianites. And so again, Gideon is a flawed character in this story. And it's to show us that he's not the hero. God is. God's the hero of Gideon's story. God is the one who comes through again and again. God is the one who is worthy to be trusted. God is the one we look to not to Gideon. And so we can find encouragement in God's fulfillment of his promises. And we can find encouragement that whatever trials and challenges we face this morning, the personal ones, not just the big church ones, whatever things that keep you up at night, God lavishes his grace upon his people patiently condescends to give us exactly what we need. And he reassures us with this word, how will he, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously, lavishly, generously, and patiently give us all things? So let me recap the five observations and then bring this to a close. God grants grace for the fearful, God works against human boasting. God chooses what is weak to reveal his power. God gives well-timed encouragement. And God secures a great and counterintuitive victory. And so the main thing I want us to see this morning is that God is with us. We don't need to be afraid at any key moment in the life of this church. We don't need to fear. We don't need to be anxious. Whatever certainties, uncertainties come, we do not need to be afraid. God tells us, I am the Lord and I will be with my people. When we say Jesus is the chief shepherd of the sheep, that's just not throwaway language. We mean that at every moment. Jesus is the one who leads us, and he graciously condescends to help us. And so this morning, let's not walk by fear, but walk by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. 
be reminded this morning that God is in control and working so that no one can boast and so that he would receive all the glory. And so with church uncertainties or global uncertainties, upcoming elections and wars and an increasingly wicked culture, with our own personal fears and doubts and trials and struggles, physical, emotional, what does God tell us? He says, I will be with you. And he's proved it with his son, Jesus. He will not withhold from us anything because he's given us the most precious thing in all the world. His son, Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, that we might know him and love him. And so we want to be a people that abandons any illusion of self-sufficiency. And, and let me just speak to where we're headed real briefly. As, we, as I think about the future of the North Campus, I am eager, I'm excited to see God enable us to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. And I think God has given us much grace to do that in several ways, but let me just highlight three. I want to be a people that is engaged in equipping each one of us. So in Ephesians 4.11, it says pastors and teachers and elders are given to the church to equip them for the work of ministry. So I would love to see us continue to equip our people, you all, to be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. What our world needs more than ever is a people that reflects the very holiness of God and that stands firm, that we would be an army and a forest of oaks of righteousness, that they would see something different and say, I don't get it all, but I want what you guys have. And that we would be a people that would raise up leaders to stand firm for Christ in every sphere, from our children to our youth to our college students, to our seminarians, that we would raise up leaders who would stand in workplaces and in neighborhoods and in pulpits and stand firm proclaiming the name of Jesus, to be unafraid, to pay the cost for standing firm, and that we would continue to be a church that sends missionaries to the very ends of the earth so that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed where it's not proclaimed right now, and that we would begin at home with a growing, burgeoning evangelistic zeal for our neighbors and for those around us. Let me end on one final note of lavish grace that the Lord gives. Gideon is not someone to be emulated, we said earlier. He struggles, he doubts, constantly filled with unbelief. He waffles, he gets it wrong often. And yet, where else does his name show up? In Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith. That's stunning. Hebrews 11:32. And what more shall I say? These are all the people who walked by faith. For time would fail to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, 
of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Despite Gideon's fear and doubt and unbelief and need for reassurance, God points to him and dozens of other flawed disciples and says they lived by faith. They lived by faith. And that was enough. And so see the lavish and patient love of God, that his power is made perfect in weakness. And let's be those who don't walk in fear, who aren't anxiously looking about us, but let's be a people as we look at the uncertainty ahead of us, the excitement that lies ahead of us, and we say, Jesus is our shepherd, and we will walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus, lead us. We're ready wherever you're taking us. We do not want to wander in the desert for 40 years, but lead on and we will go where King Jesus leads us because he is trustworthy. He will never let us down. He will never fail. He will never falter. And all those who put their trust in this Jesus will never be ashamed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, We are excited and eager to see what you will do for your glory and for the good and for the joy of your church. So conform us to your image. Make us more like your son so that in all things, Jesus would get the glory and honor and praise. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.